Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it is our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to wearesya.com. What's up, everybody? Just in case you were like, man, he's got cool sleeves on. I have my compression sleeves. My tendonitis is working it. So I think I just feel very um, self-conscious in them and felt like I should say something about it. It's all for me. You didn't really need to know it, but I told you anyway. Um, I wasn't going to preach tonight on this, but we just, we just had some things come up to where um, I needed to. And I've, I've, we're going to talk about wisdom. I've spoken here on wisdom several times. Um, so I, I did try to work um, with the time I had to, to cook up a couple of things new, but there's only so many ideas you can have about the same thing that are, are you know, different. But I still think, especially in light of this series um, that we've been talking on, um, well, not especially, I'm just excited about it. Um, and so I hope it's helpful. But let me, let me back up to where we've been in this series called um, Crystal Ball. Um, my take is, as much as we'd like it to be, neither scripture nor God is our crystal ball. I don't think God is interested in revealing to you or to me um, each step ahead of time. I do not think he's really interested in that. And so what I've been trying to do these last couple weeks is unpack um, what I think about God's will as far as that's even possible. And one of the beautiful things, wonderful things about preaching and teaching and counseling people is that you have to kind of work out your ideas, you know? And so these are, uh, these are th- this is a hard idea, God's will. But, but I've at least, I think, maybe, um, I don't know if concluded is the appropriate word because maybe I'll change my mind at some point. But right now, the way I've got my arms around God's will, the part of God's will I feel comfortable with, um, and and maybe God's will isn't the right term, maybe it's understanding God's will or living out God's will, is this, that God's will is not about puzzle solving, it's about character building. I'm, I'm, I'm leaning into that a lot feel pretty comfortable about that. And at least part of the hinge between his will and your character building, part of the hinge that holds those two things together and move them back and forth, God's will and your character building, I think at least part of the hinge is wisdom, is wielding wisdom, using wisdom, living in wisdom. And you and I today face like more decisions with access to far more information than anyone that's ever lived before us. This is just true. But access doesn't equal understanding. The fact that we have access to more information quicker doesn't mean we understand things better. There's probably a good argument for the opposite of that. But wisdom transcends, it, it, it rises above information. It does something with it. And I would argue that you and I need something more foundational than just going with our gut. Even if we, what we call our gut is God as crystal ball, God as crystal ball. We need something more substantial because decision making shapes and breaks our lives. I think it's too important for impulse. So the question is, how do you wield wisdom? I just, two things, with things within the two things. You define it and personalize it. Wisdom, in simplest terms, wisdom is choosing between wrong, acceptable, and best. Something like that. And so to work toward a a definition, I want to unpack what I'm going to call wisdom's best. I want to give you a couple things, unpack a couple things from this idea of wisdom's best. Here's the first one. Wisdom's best begins with the fear of of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 it says fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the holy one results in good judgment. Wisdom's best begins with the fear of the Lord. Now, and many of you know this, 
this, the biblical idea of fearing God. It means to revere, respect, have reverence for. But it also means literal fear, right? Because that's appropriate. Now, 1 John tells us later in the New Testament that as a child of God, right, that you don't have to, like, fear in this way of God. But, like, okay, here's some, some ideas that have made sense to me in my life in understanding this. Have you ever been, whether you're afraid of heights or not, but, like, have you ever been up on, like, a really, 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 really big cliff or building and looked down with, and there wasn't a barrier, right? Like, I don't know about you, and maybe you don't have this. You don't have this fear of heights at all. Because I don't fear heights normally, but there's been some experiences I've had in really tall places with no barrier, and I'm just thinking, oh, my goodness, if I fell, like, um, yeah, I'd probably die before I even hit the ground, right? Like, it's so high up, right? And, like, your body reacts. Like, my, my knees would start to shake, and it was very scary. I was afraid, appropriately. Or here's one I, I found really interesting. You've been to a zoo, and there's an area with lions. And parents like me have their little bitty kids. And... And here, this is the space that separates you and this ferocious beast, right? There's a glass, right, that's going to protect you. But like, I don't, and I don't even know that I can describe the thought. I think it's more primal, right? It's a feeling. But I'm like, I'm looking at little Silas when he's a little guy, and he's like, ah, look at the kitty, and he wants to, you know, it's a, and, I, and you can see the lion licking his chops, Right? And there's just this primal thing of fear. I'm like, there's just a glass. And I know the glass will protect him. I get it. I understand it in a modern sense. I get it. But I, I, I couldn't stay very long. I was just like, okay, there's the lions. Let's go. Look at this giraffe, right? Like there's just like this weird appropriate fear. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because it puts life into perspective before you try to assimilate the information and then live out the decision. That's why it's the beginning. It's, it's reverence for who God is and what he has done. It is appropriate fear for who God is and what he has done. Wisdom holds fear and amazement and love and acceptance in tension. It, they're all true at the same time. In Scripture, the terms wise and foolish are actually moral terms. It's not, it's not like stupid, you know, or ignorant and smart. Wise and foolish have to do more with moral terms. Listen to Psalm chapter 14. You've probably heard this. It says, the fool says in their heart that there is no God. Now, this gets used a lot to, I don't know, say something to atheists, I guess. Uh, I, I honestly think that it's very far from trying to say anything like what we usually talk about. I, I think this, and this is one psalm, as you read the psalms and the proverbs and the, the other wisdom literature in the Bible, what, what you see is they're not, they're, it's more than intellectual belief in God's existence. Because who the psalmist was talking about as an ancient Hebrew person, they believed in the existence of God. It had more to do, biblically, wise and fool, wisdom and foolishness are revealed through how you and I see the world and then live in it. This is what James chapter 3, Jesus' little brother, James chapter 3, verse 13, he says, who is wise among you? And then he doesn't like list a name. That would have been cool, right? If you were in the early church and they're reading this letter and like he said your name, Who's right? who is wise among you? Monet, right? And then all the people are like, Wah! That would have been great, but he doesn't do that. He says, who is wise among you? Let them show it by their good life. Deeds done. Now get this. In the humility that comes from wisdom. Job chapter 28, verse 28, it says, the fear of God is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. You see there in one verse where the idea of wisdom and foolishness is moral in both senses. Right? Like wisdom is to fear God, but turning away from evil is also a part of it. Wisdom's best begins with the fear of the Lord. 
Next, wisdom's best also looks beyond what's wrong with it to the better question, what's wise about it. Foolishness often begins with the series of, but there's nothing wrong with this. Here's a few examples. Like, there's nothing wrong, and I would agree with this, by the way. We're just talking morally. We're not talking wisdom, necessarily. There is nothing wrong with sitting on a couch with an entire bag of potato chips and just eating until you feel like being done. There's nothing wrong with that, right? That versus portions, right? There's nothing wrong with surfing the internet aimlessly when you're bored and alone at night. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being at an open bar party, right, with coworkers or friends, even though you've maybe had struggles with those kind of parties in the past. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with your boyfriend sleeping over at your house because he's tired, it's late, and your parents are cool with it. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. But the idea of there's nothing wrong with it almost always leads to how close can I get to the line and still be okay? That seems to be where it devolves to. Like, I've used this one before with uh, high school students. Imagine, because we do this with God. Imagine doing this with your best friend. Imagine, uh, let's do girls. Girls, imagine going to your best friend. Your, your best girlfriend has a boyfriend. And imagine going to her and saying, you know, hey, Cindy, um, what could I do with, uh, what, what should we call him? We'll call him Jim Bob. What could I do with Jim Bob and you still be my friend? Like, like physically. Like, could I hold his hand? Could I, could I hold his hand at the movie that we all three go to? Could I kiss him on the cheek? Could I kiss him on the mouth? Could I make out with him? Could I? Like, you're already looking at me like I'm really weird because it's a really weird question, and yet we do this with God all the time, whether we directly ask God, because there's nothing wrong with it. Often premeditates, how close can I get to the line without going over, or and still be okay? And once we live near the line long enough, we start to ask, how far? Like, once you live here, like, you go, there's nothing nothing wrong with it. Usually gets here, how close can I get and still be okay? You live here long enough by the line, you'll start to say, how far over can I go without having to experience the pain of consequence? Now, again, most of us don't say those things, but it's where a lot of us end up psychologically when we've been, like, asking what's wrong with it versus what's wise about it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, they say, don't use your freedom in Christ as like a cloak, a cover-up of sin. Wisdom's best looks beyond what's wrong to what's wise. And then wisdom's best assimilates various knowledge, a variety of knowledge, like your experiences, good and bad. The experiences of others, uh, those maybe that you don't trust, but you've watched their, their, uh, their pain and suffering from some of their foolish decisions. Those you do trust, who you've seen both. You assimilate your experiences, theirs, and God's word. And we're going to dive deeper next week. This is how we're going to end this series, this idea of God's direction, how God speaks to us and, and does, I believe, guide us. But I want to show you Proverbs chapter 2 because it's a, it's a powerful picture of us seeking wise counsel from other people and also God's word. I mean, this reading through this is like a sermon in itself. It's, it's that good, right? I mean, it's the Bible, so of course. Proverbs chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My child, listen to what I say and treasure my commands. This is an older, wise person. Wisdom listens to the wise. And then, and then they write, tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding, because wisdom focuses. Cry out, cry out for insight, and ask, plead for understanding. Wisdom prays. It says, search for them, for wisdom, as you would for silver. Seek them like hidden treasures, because wisdom searches beyond initial feelings. That's, this is the way I read this. This idea of searching out 
like, like digging in, investigating. Because psychologically, what we have to do is move beyond our initial feelings because we're all old enough to know that often our, we're made up of, we're a bundle of paradoxes when it comes to our chemical and biological makeup. And so I need to search, I need to pull apart and look beyond my initial feelings. Verse five, then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord and you will gain knowledge of God. For the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Wisdom ultimately comes from God. He grants, God grants a treasure of common sense to the honest. He is a shield to those who walk with integrity. I do believe this is how it works, that wisdom flows from honesty because it's humble. Wisdom comes, wisdom comes after honesty because it's humble. Wisdom's like a reward in some ways for honesty because it's humble. And then verse 11 and 12. It says, wise choices will watch over you. Wisdom will save you from evil people, from those whose words are twisted. And so I say wisdom, wisdom practiced enough becomes a muscle that protects you or a compression sleeve that keeps everything in place and even keeps you from pain, even from painful people. It teaches you how to navigate with harmful, hurtful, even, it says, evil people. Wisdom ultimately tries to answer the question, what's the wise thing to do? And there's a way you can filter that. I wanna, I've shared this before. I want to share this again. You can filter every single decision through what's the wise thing to do, but in a way that is tailored to you, to your life, because your life's not my life. Your life is very different than mine and vice versa. So Roman numeral number two is wisdom personalize it. Because there are certainly times when wisdom is needed to eliminate the sinful choice. I understand there's wisdom at times needed for that, but often, if you are honest in your life and trying to live God's way, wisdom is most needed in the non-moral choices, to ask what is best. So the practical work here is to ask the wise question. What's the wise thing to do from three different views? From the rear view, from the bird's eye view, and from the telescope view. The rear view. What's the wise thing to do? Any decision, no matter how small or how big, whether moral or non-moral, one of the ways you start is what is the wise thing to do? Not what's the right or wrong thing. What's the wise thing to do in light of my past experiences? But let's be honest up front. Um, past struggles are not fun to ponder, right? We know this. But self-awareness is essential for growth, like personal and character growth. When I was eight years old, I was out swimming at a friend's house, and I had to hurry home, and my grandparents were in town from Oklahoma, we're there in Missouri, and they're going to take us out to eat, because I was like a big deal, right? We go out to eat, and, uh, and I think it was Red Lobster. Have you ever been to Red Lobster? I know, there used to be one out here. I'm not sure if there still is in the valley. Red Lobster, big deal. My dad loved it. Um, so I was swimming, and I came home, and I ran in the door, and my mom said, Dust, come on you got to hurry, get dressed, we're ready, we're ready, we're waiting on you. So I decided um, that I was going to wear jean shorts, right? They were there, they were like kind of on the floor like my things were. And I decided to wear jean shorts with no underwear because this would be faster. Oh, you see where this is going. And I zipped something up into my jean shorts. And I never needed for the rest of my life from 8 to 44, I never have had to ask, is it wrong to wear uh, jeans or jean shorts without underwear underneath? Is it wrong? I've never asked that. <laughs> All I had to do was ask, what's, what's wise in light of my past zipping, right? Like this is one of my ponderings. I had a, an adult friend who took like a year off from playing basketball with friends, grown, grown man, because he would get angry and uh, look really foolish. And he was a leader, Christian leader, 
And so he just decided, I can't hide completely from like competition and conflict, but basketball is an area where it really comes out. So in light of my past experiences, I'm going to work on it in some other ways and try to come back to it. And he did, and he had grown in light of his past experiences. Um, I hardly had a sip of alcohol after I came to Christ until I was in my 30s. Um, Not because I thought having a glass was wrong, but because of my past. I had never drank alcohol without getting drunk. And partly because I lived in a glass house as a leader, but it was based on my past experiences. So what's, what's wise in light of the past also works in good decisions too. Like... When you're trying to figure out, should I, do, uh, should I do X or Y? And if you start seeing like, man, why? I mean, I could do both, and both are good. But every time I think about the decision of why, right, the, the, this decision, I like, there's this passion in me. There's, it connects to this deep passion. Like, that may help guide you based on past experiences because you've gone, well, I've done something like that before, and I really liked it. That may be one of the ways you decide. Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 11, he says, I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. How did he do that? By having a lot and by not having very much. And it wasn't necessarily something he chose. It was circumstantial. He learned from it as he looked back on his past. Asking what's wise in light of my past can also be a part of your redemption, part of writing your story forward or God and you writing it. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, very famous verse. We know that God works all things together. He synchronizes things. He pulls all the good, the bad, and the ugly together for the good. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed. Behold, all things have become new. I do not believe Jesus is a a musician. Maybe he is. Maybe he's a musician. I didn't mean to say that, though. I don't believe Jesus is a magician. I don't think he does magic tricks, taking broken pieces and putting them back together. I don't want to overthink this, but once a thing is broken, like it's never truly the same after. Like you can refurbish it, but you still have to sell it cheaper, right? Why? Because it's refurbished. you carry your scars with you, and so do I. Like, our, we can be redeemed and forgiven of the past, but it's not like they're exercised, like an exorcist, out of us. They don't disappear. We're not supposed to be identified by them, but I think we become foolish if we ignore them or act like God has, like, made them disappear. And I think there's something important and I'll even spiritualize it. Maybe this is manipulative, but I'm telling you ahead of time, so, but like I'll spiritualize it. When Jesus shows up risen from the dead, how did he convince Thomas that it was him? Yeah. Because in God's infinite wisdom, for whatever reason, whether it's the reason I'm trying to make work for my little sermon right now, or whatever the actual reason is, Jesus rose from the dead with his scars. Because I think there's something profound in that. Instead of being a magician, I think what Jesus does is he takes our broken past and our broken pieces, and he fashions, he synchronizes, synergizes a new kind of mosaic into a redemption that becomes something brand new. That's why Paul says, as we read in 2 Corinthians, behold, all things, those who are in Christ, you've become something new, a new creation. Not an old broken thing that got put back together again, but something new and redeemed. My painful past, it has, it has been a part of what has, that God has used, not caused, they were all my choices but that God has used in the past to lead me into a better future, and yet it was still my choice. But I've also seen God use my redemption to help others. And in having to humble yourself in light of your past, this creates space for empathy when others are going through it. And we've seen already from James that through humility comes wisdom. 
So what's the wise thing to do? You can ask this in any decision you're dealing with, big or small. What's the wise thing to do in light of my past experiences? Bird's eye view. What's the wise thing to do in light of my present circumstances? Um, At 18, I I stopped going to parties. I I, I didn't drink. I didn't have a sip of alcohol. So I was somewhere in my 30s. But at 21, I worked at this sports bar, paying my way through Bible college. Um, I was invited to play poker, and I went. It was non-Christians, and they, they drank a lot, and they were foul, uh, but I, w- I was there. So what was different at 18 than 21? There were a couple things. My present circumstances were different than my past. It was legal, first of all, for these guys to be drinking. I was strong in the Lord. I, was, I could be around drinking, and I never drank. I mean, I did, but it was Dr. Pepper, because the guy who did the party, he would, he would bring me Dr. Pepper. But I enjoyed playing cards, but the main reason I was there to build these friendships with these guys outside of work. My circumstances were different. What's the wise? Would that have been wise when I first became a Christian? No, it wouldn't have. I tried. Went to a party. I didn't end up drinking, but like, like it just wasn't good for my soul. So what's the wise thing in light of your present circumstances? When our boys were little, my wife felt guilty about not having us not doing a traditional date night every week, which I don't know if you know this or not, because most of you aren't married, Uh, having a date night in Christian world is like the 11th commandment. I don't know if you knew this. You talk to enough married people, you'll learn this real fast, right? It's like, it's like, it's up there with, hey man, you're not struggling with porn, right? No, okay, cool. Hey, are you doing a date night with your wife? I mean, it's like, it's, it's just like the 11th commandment. And so my wife had been with some, some women and women she loves, and they were talking about their date nights and how important it was, and so, you know, even though she hadn't felt guilty about it, for reasons I'll explain, now she does, because Amy's a black and white kind of person, and, and uh, you know, she feels things, and I don't really have a heart or a soul, so I don't feel anything. No, 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 I, I have a soul. But we talked about it, and he, she, I just reminded her of what she already knew, that we had done date nights lots when Asher was little, and we'd even tried to do a couple when both boys were little. And I remind her of what normally happened. We normally came home early because Amy felt really bad for the babysitter. She would call and check in. Because it doesn't matter how good our boys are, and they're two of the coolest, Amy will worry. It is part of her. She is hospitable. It's why you want Amy in your life. She will think about you more than herself, more than her kids, more than me. Right? She'll think about you in many ways. And so I reminded her. I reminded her of how much money it ends up costing to do all of that, to go out but have to pay somebody, right? Because I, I was very rare, I, it was hard for me to ever let somebody do it for free, right? And so I reminded her, and so I'm like, we, we do a date night, a lot. We put the boys to bed early, and we have a date night at home, right? And, and, and so I argued through, like, this is a season. What is why? Because my thing was, dude, if you want to do a date night, go out, I'll, whatever, I'm down. And then after, she's like, nah. You're right, right? Which is one of the best phrases ever. <laughs> I mean, from her. I love it. Um, but it was wise in light of our present circumstances. Not always. And so for you, you gotta, let's, let's just create a scenario. You got a big test on Monday. And let's say it's tomorrow. It's Friday. And you got to work on Friday. You got family coming over all day on, on uh, Sunday. So Saturday is your only day you don't work before Monday that you have to be able to study, right? Saturday. But tonight, someone invites you to a get-together, to a party, to a hangout. Everybody's going to be there, even that person that you kind of like, right? So the question is, what's the wise thing to do in in light of your present circumstances? Because the truth, of course, there's going to be more parties, be more get-togethers. Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, but don't begin until you count the cost. Who... Who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? That's part of the bird's eye view. Assessing present circumstances, it pays attention to the rhythms of your schedule, but also the rhythms and reality of your personality. Like, here's some examples. Do you have enough downtime? This is part of what's the wise thing to do in light of my uh, present circumstances. Uh, Introverts. Do you have enough downtime if you do this thing, say yes to this thing? 
Are you uh, extroverts? Are you going to be able to be around people enough to to gather the energy you need? What might you need to remove before you add more? Is there unresolved conflict that is clouding your thinking right now? That's present circumstance. What what was the season that you just came out of especially especially hard or emotional to where you may need to step back and get someone that's a little more feet to the the, the ground because maybe you're not thinking reasonably you're thinking more emotionally wisdom illuminates our present circumstances proverbs chapter 4 i love this it says the way of righteousness is like the first gleam of dawn which shines ever brighter until the full light of day this is part of what wisdom does it illuminates the reality in front of you the present circumstance the bird's eye view and finally The telescope view. What is the wise thing to do in light of my potential future? Here's what you and I are doing right now in our lives with every decision we make. We are writing our story, right? But here's here's how it works. The story that we're writing, it exists in the future. But we carry it now we envision it, we carry it in our potential hopes and dreams, our future. So here's kind of the banner idea. The decisions I make today have to envision the life I want tomorrow. The way I decide today has to, has to get filtered through the vision I have for my tomorrow, my future. Examples, relationships. Most of you have at least part of a picture of what you want in your marriage someday. Because for 99% of you, it's, it's someday, not right now. But if you're playing the dating game in this way, where you're creating habits of being obsessive with this person, allowing them to be possessive of you, if you're creating habits of being selfish, and lacking self-control, like, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're enjoying the benefits of marriage without the commitment. If you're doing this, why do you think that you would change in the future once you're married, if you're living like this now? And the reason I'm picking on marriage and relationships is because this is the one I see a lot. Because we know this intuitively in most every area of life. The, whatever you know, you 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 play how you practice. Like we know this, but there's something about relationships that are intoxicating that cloud our judgment and make us really really dumb. No no no, marriage isn't magic. <laughs> it's massive work, and I would argue that if anything, the bad habits you're creating in your relationships now will increase in marriage, not decrease. It's that big. Here's some other things to think about. Your present pattern of decision-making, what is it? Because it's going to evolve. Now, I'll give you some examples so you can try to think through just for a moment to allow the Spirit of God to maybe illuminate some things. But what is your present pattern of decision-making in how you spend money or how you think about or don't even think about credit card spending or borrowing money? Consider how you think about and decide about money in light of your future. Consider how you eat. You have to ask where that pattern comes from. That's some past work, right? But you need to consider how you eat in the vision you want for tomorrow. It's a part of it. It's a big part of it, your health, right? Consider how you, this one, this may sound really random, but this one I was excited about. Consider right now in this moment and allow God's spirit to speak to your heart. Consider how you treat your parents and your siblings. Step-parents too. Just, Just for a moment, consider it. Give yourself grace. Try to find the good too. But overall, consider how you treat them. Now, what has, whatever amount of time you've ever given to this, what's been your picture of a relationship with the spouse and having children someday. Because hear me, 
the way you treat the family of origin will be the greatest predictor of how you will treat your spouse once the honeymoon is over and how you will treat your children instinctively. Maybe that should scare some of you, and that's okay. Because there is a God of redemption who wants to walk with you and help you be wise and wield it. If you want to become something then that you're not now, you can't keep doing things the same way. And you tweak each one. And in every decision moving forward and thoughts about how you've been in the past, but also as you think about this decision coming up, small or big, one of those questions is, what's the wise thing to do in light of my potential future? No one really knows who said it. It's been attributed to Einstein and Mark Twain, and it seems that neither of them did, but it's a great quote. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. Make decisions in view of your potential future. And doing that is rarely going to be comfortable and fun now. (laughs) This is how it works. But wisdom can breathe confidence into the vision. Now think about this. All of us have a vision of a life we want to be meaningful, right? We want a meaningful life right now, but we, 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 uh, we romanticize, and I think that's okay. We romanticize about the future. We should think about the future and smile. Wisdom breathes confidence into the way you see your future. And I actually believe that confidence is often a fruit of being obedient to God. To obeying God in the small. To obeying God which builds character and creates humility, which leads to wisdom. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3 says, commit your works to the Lord. Now stop. The word commit in the Hebrew language, this is so good. I looked up every Hebrew way it was used in the Old Testament to commit. It literally is used in almost every other passage about rolling a stone, right? Rolling a stone. You commit your works to the Lord. In other words, I love it. Come on. Let's, let's just... Let's, uh, what's the word? Metaphor, let's use metaphors here because often metaphors are, have greater truth embedded in them than literal, right? So like you commit your work to the Lord. You, you get your life rolling and working toward God's way. Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. Your thoughts, your purpose, this envision, this vision you have for the future. Now, it'll be established I hear that read and interpreted a lot as like, it's like, it'll be done. Like what you want and in purpose, as long as you commit your life to the Lord, it'll be like given to you. I mean, God's not that kind of parent. And you know how I know that? Because I, I, I know at least enough about what makes a good parent and a bad parent. And, or at least a not good parent. A not good parent does everything for their kid. And never helps them learn to stand on their own two feet. And they keep belling their kid out. Over and over and over. Doing that over and over and over isn't grace. It's victimizing them. It is like uh, handicapping them for emotionally for their life. God walks with you. The Spirit of God lives in you. God allows consequences. And God, yes, will pull us up out of the mire so that we can see clear enough to make the next good step But the word established, commit your works, roll it toward God's way, and your purpose will be established. You know what the word literally means and how it's used in most ways? It means prepared. And and your your vision, your purpose, it'll be ready. Because it's potential. Like if everything, if everything was not only written but revealed, and you just kind of had to be become like this possessed robot, and you just did each thing. You know, as, as God led you, um, I don't know what that is, but it's not growth. I don't know that it's human. I'd like to be human. I don't know about you. <laughs> Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, seek God's kingdom above all else and live God's way, righteousness. And then all the basics will get covered. What is the wise thing to do in light of your past experiences, your present reality, and your potential future? 
I've told this story before. Sorry, I'm going to tell it again. It's a good one. Um, it's, it's a Buddhist story, and I just think it's fun in my silly brain to end a Christian sermon uh, with a, a story about Buddha. Um, legend has it that when Buddha was a boy, he was eager to learn about God, and he went to the mountains, and he found this sage, this guru, who is said to know more about the things of God than anybody else. And he found this man down by the river, and he asked him, you know, this guru, the sage, he said, I, will, you, will you teach me about God? I want to know, know about God more than anything else. And the man, the guru didn't say anything, didn't respond at all, didn't even, like, acknowledge him. And, and, and Buddha, the, the legend goes, he asked him several more times until um, the third or fourth time, the, the, the sage grabbed Buddha's head and plunged his head under the water and held him under the water and, and, and so long that he like, couldn't breathe and he was drowning. And right before he thought he was just going to, like his lungs were going to burst and he was going to die, the guy pulled his head up out of the water and then says to him, so the legend goes, when you want God more than you wanted that next breath, you'll find him. I don't know if that's true, but it's good. <laughs> Jesus said this to a group of religious people, actually religious leaders, Pharisees. John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you diligently search the scriptures. You search their ancient wisdom and their law because you believe that they, the scriptures, will give you life. But I tell you, these scriptures point to me, and if you'd come to me, I would give you ultimate life. Wisdom's best begins and ends with Jesus. Well, this is what I believe. I'm suspect, if you haven't already recognized, I'm suspect of Christians who talk about Jesus constantly giving them the answers. Part of, part of that is because it, it suits my personality. I've admitted that again and again. But I also see it in Scripture. Of the 183 questions that Jesus was asked that is recorded in the four Gospels, he only explicitly answers three. <laughs> the others, he replies to the question with a question. So it gives us over 300 questions that Jesus asks, often in response to a question. Questions like, who do you say I am? If you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Can worry add a single moment to your life? Why are you anxious about clothes? Have you never read the scriptures? Why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your tradition? And what good is it to gain the whole world but give up what matters most? Those are only a few. He asked many more. That could be a project for you. To just look up every time Jesus asked a question and maybe note how many times it's in response to a question. Our God's an asker. Because questions reveal. And that's where wisdom is found often, in the wrestling. It's no, wis it's no wonder the people of Israel have been known as some of the wisest people that have ever walked the earth. Their name came from a man named Jacob, one of the, the forefathers of the Hebrew faith. But the story goes that he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, which means to wrestle with God. And by the way, I just thought of this, this works really good. Before he changed his name, God asks him, as if he doesn't already know, God does that, starting with Genesis 3. God asks him a question we already know. He says, Jacob, what is your name? And then he says it again. It's almost as if he's saying, what's your name? Say it. And there's a reason for that. Jacob's name meant something. And then he changed it. God's an asker. Growing wise isn't ultimately knowing more information or finding balance. Knowing Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and with you here and now. This is ultimate wisdom. The band's going to come up. I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's from the message translation from Eugene Peterson. 
1 Corinthians 1, verse 20 through 25. So who is truly wise in this age? Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world in all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took the light in using what the world considered dumb to reveal salvation, preaching of all things. While Jews clamor for miraculous demonstrations, maybe you're more like the ancient Jews, looking for the sign and wonder to move forward. And like the Greeks who go in for philosophical wisdom, some of us like that. Like, I don't want to feel, I don't want to see anything, just give it to me straight, as if that's the way. But we go right on proclaiming Christ the crucified. Now get it. To us, Christ is God's ultimate miracle and wisdom all wrapped up in one. And Paul writes in Philippians 3 that I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I might experience the resurrection from the dead. My honest prayer for you and for me is that we would go after Jesus like we were fighting for our drowning breath. Praise and knowledge and stuff and trophies and money, ultimately these are going to find their resting place in the residue of time. But Jesus is source, new creation, ground of being, the risen one. Here's how I want to end um, my time before we go in together to a time of response and worship. I've got a couple uh, of my little breathing prayers where you take a couple of very short phrases that can, could be, if you wanted it to, be memorized pretty easy. In the first part, you would say, whether it's out loud or just through a breath, as you inhale. In the second part, you would think or say to the Lord on the exhale. I've, I've got them on your handouts. I think I've got them on the screens too. The first one is one I've, uh, just a prayer of humility and truth. And because I'm a, I'm a I, I, I find my home more with the Greeks than I do the Jews in this way, I wrote this. Humility without truth is naive. Truth without humility is arrogant. And I know this all too well. On the inhale, and then we'll take a moment to even practice it for those who are willing. On the inhale, it is simply God who is above, through, and in all. And if that sounds new agey to you, it's okay. It's old agey, it's from the Bible. <laughs> God who is above, through, and in all. And on the exhale, it would be guide me in humility and truth. Because you need both. God who is above, through, and in all, guide me in humility and truth. Maybe close your eyes if you're willing. I'll say this a few more times and just give some space. God, who is above, in, and through all, guide me in humility and truth. And as I say it, maybe you can inhale here. God, who is above, through, and in all, and as you exhale, guide me in humility and truth. Here's the last one. This one I've got without having to look. But I took, I, I, I shaped this one based on John chapter six. You can read it sometime. But the prayer on the inhale would be, Lord Jesus, in clarity or confusion. And then on the exhale, it is, I choose you today. And I'm telling you, I have a couple banners. Characters, everything. Jesus has ruined my life in the most beautiful way. But, uh, but this one, this one sometimes gets first place. Lord Jesus, in clarity or confusion, either way, I choose you. Maybe that's my honest prayer.
for each of you, my brothers and sisters. That whether you are confident in the Lord in this moment or the one that you'll face next and in the season to come, or whether you're confused or like so many of us, you're both. (laughs) Some things are clear, much is confusing. That your prayer would be either way. I choose you. Stand with me and let's, uh, let's do that prayer and then let's worship and respond together. Lord Jesus Christ, in clarity or confusion, I choose you today. Lord Jesus, in clarity or confusion, I choose you in this moment. Jesus, in the things in my life as I look in the past, the present, and my hopes and dreams for the future, some of it is clear. Much of it is confusing. And still I choose you. Because of all things great and beautiful, Jesus, you are their source. The ground of all being. The one with whom we wrestle. The one with whom, for, to whom we go for answers. And the one who often responds with more questions. Jesus, in the things that I'm clear on, or at least think I am, and in the things that I end up becoming confused by because of you and your questions and your leading in my life that sometimes messes me up all again in the best ways, choose you because you in the dark with you in the dark there's still so much more light than anywhere else in the world this I believe and so for my friend here tonight who is uh, weighing in way more heavy on the side of confusion maybe with some major decisions in front of them. Jesus, I pray that they choose you. In spirit of God, that you would pace with them and guide them, help them wield your wisdom and your truth to ask what's wise in light of the past, right now, and someday. Lord Jesus, in clarity or confusion, we choose you. Amen. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at wearesya.